Straight ahead on this July 2020 edition of On SI. Like many performing arts programs, COVID-19 has left the landmark St. George Theater eerily and uncharacteristically silent. But despite the ongoing crisis and uncertain months ahead, the venue's resilient leadership team says the show must go on. At the peak of the pandemic in New York City, Staten Island University Hospital's two campuses were inundated with people battling and sadly all too often succumbing to the deadly virus. The hospital's executive director offers insight into how the hospital and the local community came together to overcome adversity. And remembering a civil rights icon on the North Shore, where you can experience a special tribute in West Brighton to Congressman John Lewis. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Patty Murphy. We begin this month at 35 Hyatt Street, where the magnificent St. George Theater has stood since 1929. And while it has certainly experienced ups and downs during its decades of existence, COVID-19 has challenged its current not-for-profit operators like never before. On SI's Joe Malvasio has more. Since 2004, a nonprofit called the St. George Theater Restoration, Inc. has re-energized what had become a relic of the past that many feared was destined for demolition. But Doreen Cugno, its president and CEO, says the St. George Theater's successful comeback is now being threatened by the COVID-19 pandemic. Our cash flow stopped majorly. Hundreds of thousands of dollars that come in monthly with ticket sales stopped. You know, and this is what really the bread and butter of the theater that have paid the gas, the electric, the utilities, the major overhead. After closing in March, the theater has missed more than 130 performances, forcing the layoff of nearly 200 people. While quickly adapting, they've pivoted to virtual sessions for its educational programs and are even looking to take a page from Broadway's playbook to bring the live theater to the small screen in schools. The Board of Ed already announced that there's no school trips next year. So we're trying to do something in Hamilton where they brought Hamilton to the TV. You know, it's so important that we continue the arts. And if we have to bring it to them, that's what we're going to do. As for fundraising, with its major events, including the 2020 Christmas show canceled, they're launching a web-based telethon to begin streaming on August 2nd at 7 p.m. on the theater's website and social media platforms. We have a 75-minute show with, I believe, a really star-studded cast. Uh, Everyone has a connection to the St. George Theater or Staten Island. And it's to help raise awareness that the St. George Theater will be here for a very long time. However, at this time, we need help. She says all proceeds from the virtual telethon will help ensure the theater is ready to capture the imaginations of locals when it's safe to do so. Let's think about normalcy in 2021, where we're all reunited because I certainly believe music, dance, comedy can heal and reunite a community. And I know everyone's going to be wanting to celebrate once we see normalcy again. You know, we just have to be patient. For many, the pandemic has brought to light the everyday heroism of healthcare workers. At the peak of COVID-19's wrath on Staten Island, hospitalizations and deaths hit staggering levels. I recently had the unique opportunity to discuss this extraordinary time with Dr. Brahim Ardolek, the executive director of Staten Island University Hospital. Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Great, thank you for having me. 
You know, we are recording this at Staten Island University Hospital in Ocean Breeze, and it, just a few months ago in April, this would be unheard of. It wouldn't be possible because of the rising cases of coronavirus here in New York City. So let's go back to when COVID-19 was escalating on the island. Yep. Can you describe how the staff here at SIUH responded to the pandemic during its early stages? You got to give credit to the guys and gals that are running towards the burning building. And this is our burning building. At the end of the day, this is the worst example that I've seen in my career. And I've seen a couple of this is our burning building. So I would say early on in the process, it was it was two competing interests. It was this idea that we really want to help Staten Island, but then this competing fear. And if you remember early on in the process, and we've learned a lot about coronavirus over the last quarter, uh, which you know it feels like we've been dealing with this for a generation, much less it's only been a few months. But early on in the process, there was this heightened fear. People didn't understand how you get it. People didn't understand who gets it. They didn't understand how big was the risk they were going to bring this home to their families. You had people with small children who didn't really understand what was the real risk. And if you look at the data we had, we had some very, very sketchy data from one or two places around the world. We didn't know really what it meant. And then, of course, we found out that a lot of the people that were, quote unquote, positive for corona in other countries never even had a corona test. So we didn't even know what the heck we were dealing with. When you look back over the past several months, what are some of the milestones that stand out in your mind that have provided valuable lessons for navigating a pandemic in the future? I have to assume PPE is part of that equation hospital visitation, elective surgeries, these sort of things. I will tell you that if you look at the thing that saved the most people's lives and the thing that really we never fully understood how good we could be at it, repurposing locations and repurposing staff and repurposing, like we've been hearing for years about how, oh my gosh, we have no ICU capacity in the country. Well, it turns out we did. We went from routinely running our hospital between 90 and 95 percent ICU capacity and for three weeks we ran our ICU at our north site at 300 percent capacity and a smidge less than 300 at our south site we found ICU beds right so when we needed to because the the reality is was it was one of these recognitions that you know the hospital isn't necessarily a place it's a skill set and a group of people who are taking care of somebody so yeah I don't necessarily need to have a room that is exactly this number of square feet with exactly this and exactly that to be able to take care of somebody. We figured out quite early that, you know what, if you have motivated staff and you're willing to work with them and you're willing to give them and find them the correct PPE and find them everything that they actually need, you can take care of people in a way that you didn't think you necessarily could. And I really don't believe that we were taking care of people in a MASH setting. No, we were taking care of people in an absolutely appropriate way, but in a way that wasn't a traditional ICU. The fact that they were able to change on the fly and the fact that they were able to work with people that they wouldn't normally work with, the fact that I was able to go take an ICU nurse as a leverage point and put them with non-ICU nurses so that we could actually take care of people, no one ever thought that we could do it. And we did it because we had to. And it probably more than anything else saved the most people's lives. And then, of course, the conundrum of PP and equipment and everything else of how do you get whatever. And from my standpoint, we were lucky. We are part of an organization that was very early to the game and actually acquiring PP, acquiring extra nursing staff, acquiring ventilators. 
the PP equation, we have to do better as a medical society. Uh, and we were fortunate here, right? Because what if this virus was a little more airborne? <laughs> you know, um, we, were, we were a little fortunate because if this virus had been just a bit more airborne or just a bit more virulent when it comes to actually transmitting from one person to another, this could have been even worse. And I, I think we have to learn, you, you know, we can't be reliant upon shipping containers that are only coming from one part of the world for PP. We just can't. We can't be relying upon the same three factories and the same two countries for all of our ventilators around, around the country. We're just too big for that. And we have to figure out a better way. What does that mean? I'm not a politician. I'm not even going to go there. But I, I do think there has to be a better answer to that. And as a society, we just have to say that, you know, there's got to be a way to get PPE from somewhere within the continental 48 U.S. states. It just has to be. I would even think that as a vaccine is being developed that needles, syringes, all of that equipment has to be part of an equation as well. So it's, it's quite large, it's quite complicated, and you were mentioning some numbers which are staggering, yeah. but you also humanized the narrative. I'll never fully understand what my environmental folks did during that process. Can you imagine you're the gal or the guy whose job it is is to clean after the COVID patients who died? It's very easy to dismiss that or to just say, well, they're doing their job, which they are. But every day they had to go in there and clean the room of the poor person who just we just lost. Mm -hmm. And there were so many of those examples. I'll still wake up and, you know, and and think of the nurse who held that person's hand in the ICU. Uh, I'm thinking of one particular situation um, because the family just couldn't be there. And. (laughs) <laughs> the day that I found out that that nurse did this with tw- 11 other people, was it was almost like, you watched how many people die? And it was, um, it was a really important moment for me to recognize what some of these people went through. Fast forward on the timeline a, bit, a little bit to today, and the numbers are de-escalating. And back to facing that fear. Um, how do the health care professionals on the front lines stay so resilient? You know, I think it's a process. Uh, I don't think there's any question that that there's going to be real fallout from what people saw. So I think that for a lot of people, and I really hope and I've encouraged everybody to talk about this and to talk about what the implications of it was to them, I do fear that there's some of them that haven't really even kind of come to grips with what this actually meant. As a healthcare professional, you get used to seeing people at the end of their life, but you don't get used to seeing it as much as we did and you don't get used to seeing it all at the same time and you don't get used to seeing it all from the same thing which has its own particular sadness and fear and sense that I'm not you know when is this going to end so I, I think today resiliency isn't a point in time resiliency is a process and you know We've called upon all of our providers to say, listen, you know, you're not in this alone. You have to talk to somebody. And we've tried to give them resources of who they could talk to that we could help them with. And for some people, they would avail themselves. And some people just, that's not what they want to do. They'd prefer to do it in their own lives. But you got to do it somewhere. Thank you for that. And I do want to ask you about the 7 p.m. clappy hours that took place across New York City and here on Staten Island. Yeah. What was it like to witness those moments of gratitude and really what did it do for morale? It was really amazing to see that people understood. We really were trying to portray to our staff that they weren't alone and we weren't alone. And I think more than anything else, the recognition 
of how difficult this actually was from other people that weren't in it every single day, I think meant a lot to people. And I think the clapouts, what they were all about was, well, yeah, we're actually in this together. We're going to get through this together, and we are going to actually be stronger. We covered a lot today. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, just really just a thank you to the community. I, I, I do think that this is still a process, and I do think that this community has been amazing in so many ways. They were so incredibly supportive. So much food sent in, so much resources, so many uh, masks sent to us. And just thank you for everything that you actually did and that you continue to do. And the fact that we were hit as hard as we were and the fact that we're doing so well today has everything to do with how much we were all in this together. We socially distanced when it really wasn't convenient. And you know, you know, my gosh, I can't wait to have dinner somewhere. But the fact that we did what we did is why we have so few cases today. And I think the fact that we all were in this together and that we really did socially distance and help each other is why that it really is starting to look like that we're going to be one of the first places to truly be able to, to move beyond this, even with a little resurgence. I, it would, it, and it's a testament to what we all did together. And just thank you. Well, thank you. As the nation continues to have a conversation about race, equality, and tolerance, we lost one of its key voices in Congressman John Lewis of Georgia, a fierce advocate for inclusive policies and a nonviolent protest. He died on July 17th at the age of 80 after a battle with cancer. Here on Staten Island, a memorial mural to the man known as the Conscious of Congress can be viewed in West Brighton in Artist Alley. The spray paint artwork is a collaboration between the island-based business Richmond Hood Company and commissioned by the organization Projectivity. The artist Damian Mitchell says he hopes the piece that features the congressman's likeness and famous quote will spark discussion across Staten Island. Hopefully it will inspire people to look up the quote that good trouble comes from um, and then some of his other quotes and then maybe read some of his long-form stuff and maybe just kind of understand the messages he was trying to put forward and um, these issues which I think are you know, still as relevant today. The congressman's full words are, quote, do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble, end quote. And finally, in case you missed it, in our last edition of On SI, we spoke to Tanisha Smith-Franks, a notable Staten Island activist and educator. In the wake of Black Lives Matter protests, she pointed to the complicated history of race and police relations in the country and urged people to arm themselves with knowledge and to keep an open mind as the country moves forward. Analyze the lived experience of different populations. You, you have to be analytical and you have to have a critical mindset and you have to ask yourself, why is this happening in one place and it's not happening in another? What is the historical context? And then what do we do to dismantle the system that put this in place? That'll do it for this edition of On SI. A thank you to Doreen Kugno, Dr. Brahim Ardolik, and Damian Mitchell. This July 2020 edition is the last of our abbreviated pilot season. We found it to be a success and will return in September for our first full season of On SI. 
We are proud to be a new independent voice for the borough and look forward to telling more stories from Richmond County. Please check out our website at onsi.nyc where you can find all of the stories we've shared to date. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On behalf of the entire team, I'm Patty Murphy. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, be well. Hello, I'm Allison Miller, the Executive Director of OnSI.NYC. Our Board of Directors and I thank you for listening to this edition of OnSI. Our mission is to tell local stories and raise awareness of the people and places that make Staten Island special. We strive to be a resource for the half a million people that call our neighborhoods home. OnSI.NYC features stories that matter to locals. If you have a story you think should be told, share it with us by emailing stories at onsi.nyc. Take care and see you on SI.